For almost 40 years, Ceres Organics has been at the forefront of the organic movement. Their vision of an organic and accessible food system has become their mantra, which means they work with organic producers around the world to create an entirely organic food range, from delicious snacks to household staples. Next time you're shopping organic, look for Ceres Organics at your local supermarket. Welcome to the Dumbo Feather Podcast. I'm Nathan, and this episode we're bringing back an old favourite, a conversation we recorded in 2018 with psychotherapist Esther Perel, who has changed the way we think about love, connection, and sex. Her books, TED Talks, and podcast, Where Should We Begin?, have all become international sensations as she focuses on relational intelligence and often brings us inside the therapy room to explore intimacy and eroticism, and where those parts of ourselves can become stuck. In this chat with Barry, Esther explores why modern relationships are more complex and nuanced than ever before. It was recorded for our love issue of Dumbo Feather magazine, which you can find over at our website, dumbofeather.com. A gentle warning, the recording quality on this one isn't great, but stick with it. It's full of gold and totally worth a listen. Hello, Esther. It's so lovely to meet you. Pleasure. I've been voraciously listening to your podcast, the latest one, for the last few weeks. It's amazing. How has the reaction been? Um, look, uh, it's, been, it's been something I could never have predicted. It's almost become a kind of a, a relationship public health campaign. Wow. Um, it's been a million and a half people that have listened to it in in a week since we since it went on iTunes. It went uh, it stayed for seven weeks on the front page of Audible. It's been number twenty at one point in all podcasts. I mean, it's actually quite amazing, and um, and the way people are listening to it and how relationship how couples are listening to it together as well, and then they discuss it, and so it's become. It's offered a kind of a, a, a mediator for conversations for, that people want to have. And and often, you know, when you listen to the universality of other people's stories, you realize that you're in front of your own mirror. Yes, I so. find that so moving that I could be listening to a couple's counseling session with a trans man and his female partner and feel synergy with my own life. It's 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 very moving. Um, Have you heard the gay couple already? Yeah, the two women talking about parenting. Yeah, but there's also then that's a very good one because it's so lovely, surprising to hear two women have a conversation that we usually hear in its uh, heterosexual version. But have you heard the two men? No. That that to me is one of my favorite ones of uh, of season one. Um, it's called Trauma Doesn't Like to Be Touched. And mm. it's the story of two men uh, talking about abuse. Wow. I mean, you've never heard it. It's uh, it, it's very powerful. So um, I am very moved. You know, nobody's ever opened their door of the therapist office to let other people listen in. Um, I think I've been able to do it without any compromise to the work itself. Um, I think the reaction of people has been 
beyond, beyond validating. Um, the letters we receive, the people who are writing, the, the, the age range, the gender range, the back. Plus, I get to, you know, Audible brings the people to me. So they're bringing, they're bringing them from all over the States. I'm not just working with urban New Yorkers. It's very, it's very refreshing. They're not just the kind of people who typically find their way into a private practice office and all of that. So, um, it really allows me to democratize the whole process of psychotherapy and of what can be done in therapy and who it is for and who can benefit from it. This brings up a whole nother issue, but I guess my question on that is, were you reticent to record real therapeutic sessions and put them up on the podcast? How did you come to do that and Decide. I mean, it really is a private space and a often taboo space, a space of damage and um, shame and fear. So what gave you the idea to record these sessions and launch them as a podcast and what was your intention in doing that? Um, do you know the book that I just wrote? As yes, well? yes, I'm reading it at the moment. Because, they, they, you know, I would put it in the context like this. I... I've always thought that the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives. I believe in the possibility of having relationships where we can experience a sense of vitality and vibrancy and aliveness. And as such, I have been a relationship therapist for 34 years, to be exact, since 83. And I know that there is not a single unit that has more expectations piled on it than the couple and that couples are often isolated. In heterosexual couples, sometimes a woman may talk to somebody and men talk to nobody. Mm. When it comes to sex, people talk very little and they lie. And when it talks to forbidden sex, they lie even more. And here is this unit called the couple that has more pressure to do well, to be happy, to be perfect, um, than any other relationship. And it has transformed in the last 150 years. Friendship hasn't really changed too much. And sibling relationships hasn't really changed too much. But the couple has undergone an extreme makeover. And it gets very little support. And to be just locked up in an office room, when you go to therapy, it's problem-ridden. It's a problem-ridden environment therapy. You to go to therapy to talk about what's wrong or what's missing. And I thought we can do better. We can do better in the realm, you know, relationships are more complex. There are more nuanced today. There are many new challenges. And, um, and I, my work is about helping people navigate these challenges and, um, and help them go through the various crises and, um, and do it with a certain approach that I have developed over the years. When, when Audible came to me, they, their original idea was to do a series that would be a kind of a he said, she said. And I just thought that that's not the way couples actually operate. Hmm. So in a couple, I say something and I make you say something that is actually not at all what you wanted to say that then makes you set me up to talk about something. And I, and I end up saying it in a way that produces the opposite effect of what I was hoping for. And, and then... You know, we make each other. It's a much more circular. Um, and I said, 
it's not so dyadic, I said, she said, because what I say is completely intertwined with what you've just done to me or what I've just experienced by being with you. And, you know, we make the other. And uh, I said, come into my office. Let's post on, on social and say we're creating a podcast. These are not my patients. None okay. of these people are my patients. These are people who apply for the podcast. And, uh, and we've had about 1,500. Basically, we stopped. We closed it because what can you do with 1,500 people when you need 20? And they basically sat in the other room and we mic'd ourselves and I just let them hear what does an extended consultation look like. The way I usually, it follows the model that I always do. Here there is a step in between where Audible also interviews them because they want to be sure that people really know what they're signing up for. But we did one session and it was, uh, which one was it? When these lips open, so do these. You heard that one? No, which one's that? The man with erectile dysfunction. Oh, my God. This is filled with lessons for everybody. And then we just posted it. And, you know, the first season people applied without knowing what it was. The second season people have been listening and they say, I want that experience. Wow. So it's different now. But I thought, in a way... It, it is exactly what I've been doing for, ter- you know, I have, I have been recording and filming sessions that I use for therapy training. And then I break it down and I explain why I do what I do. And it, it follows actually very similarly the model, but we've never opened it up to the population at large. And I thought it's really like a relationship public health campaign. How do you make people become more aware? How do you give people tools at scale? How do you provide a vocabulary, which we desperately need to talk about the difficult issues that we need to negotiate today, which are all rather new? Um, you know, there are not many, there is no long-standing tradition of how a trans man talks about himself in the context of a couple without the focus being on the fact that he's trans. That reveal in, in the podcast, I mean, you're just listening to a man talking about his relationship with his wife and then... All of a sudden, he says that he's trans and it's so disorienting because you can't see them. You're just listening to other human beings talk about, as you said, common situations that are like a mirror for all of us. And then the complexity and the nuance is revealed in ways that are so, they really throw the world upside down in a wonderful way. There's no edit. No, the only thing to edit is length. Mm. It's unscripted, real, anonymous. Uh, it is exactly what, what it is. And, um, you know, I didn't originally realize the impact it would have. It's, I wasn't, it's not planned. But I thought it would be an incredible artistic project. I didn't even think of it as a, as a public health campaign. Were you worried about... Um trespassing on traditional therapeutic processes by opening it up to the public or, or criticism for doing that? I've done that a long time ago. Huh. I've, I've broken more, I've broken quite a few orthodoxies. Um, I think that it doesn't serve couples well to be so isolated. Look, in the past, you knew exactly what was going on at your neighbor's house. You could hear every fight. The walls were porous enough. And at this moment, your close friends can divorce and you didn't see it coming. 
you know, for every other issues, we are talking about these things in public. The, the conversations in my office are about new subjects, you know, uh, and they have to do with changing gender roles and changing sexualities and sexlessness and infidelity and young men who are besieged with illnesses and, yeah, and men talking about their experiences of abuse and women talking about their, their desires. And, um, I actually think that Part of what I do is I, I like to speak about the unspoken. I like to put it out in the public square. I like to bring the wise person out of their little corner office back into the society because we need them. And I think psychologists have often abdicated their role as, as public intellectuals, as thought leaders, as wise people that can help a society. To just do our work in offices is not enough or in schools or things like that. Um, I, you know, couples therapy is a rather recent profession because couples never were that important. The, the family mattered and people made all kinds of compromises to preserve the family. But today, the family's survival depends on the emotional connection of the couple. So couples therapy has, has become the predominant force that will actually preserve a family's continuity. Can you, I've noticed, because I've been in therapy myself for 15 years and you do so many things in the sessions that are so refreshing and playful and come from theatre practice and body work and it's so liberating to listen to how you treat your patients. So how come you've always broken with orthodoxies and tell me about that? (laughs) I think that... I'm insatiably curious. I'm a traveler in many, many senses of the word. Um, I speak nine languages. I understand that there isn't one way to say things or to do things. Um, I am often quite reticent in front of dogma. And I think that every field can come up with dogma and that dogma postures as truth. And often in science, the truth of today is the joke of yesterday. Um, I never think I'm right. Um, I sound confident, but I don't think I know, you know, that that means I'm right or I have the truth on things. And I have created a platform online now, which is a, a community for therapists and coaches that is also multidisciplinary and multicultural and inclusive. Um, because I didn't want to create my own clinical chapel hmm. where I present my model and everybody comes to study my model. I think that everybody understands the problems today of echo chambers and the same thing is happening in our own field. So I like to try out new things. I like to go somewhere else and see something. Um, I'll give you an example. I just went because it's going to be something I'm going to try this week. I just went to a fantastic presentation of an artist named Miranda July, and she gave a fantastic talk and presentation. She was interviewed by Deitch and uh, the gallerist, and she made us do this whole thing by which we had to give compliments, but in fact, to her and to Deitch. But the compliments that we were to give were compliments that we would like to receive. And I thought that is an amazing couples therapy intervention. So uh, today I started trying it out with a couple. 
And on Saturday, I'm hosting a big therapy conference for the Sessions platform. And I'm going to be doing this with a few hundred people. And I've never heard, seen this done in any clinical conference. I mean, I know that for a fact. So um, I'm trained in expressive arts therapies. I mean, that in addition to my other trainings, this is a training I did for many years. I studied psychodrama for many years. And and I understand that we have multiple languages to, to, to uncover things. Um, I come from a background of two Holocaust survivor parents and uh, who are both sole survivors of their entire family. And I think I've always been reticent to one size fits all and to anything that is dogmatic or normative or bordering on fascistic. Hmm. <laughs> I just or authoritarian like that. I, I, so orthodoxy, tradition is one thing. Orthodoxy and ideology is something else. And my ideology has always been to diversify, to be inclusive, to combine models that don't normally combine. Um, I've been like that from the beginning. And I sought out mentors in every um, discipline. I just had a group for three years with five therapists. Each of them are the, at the helm of new and very uh, prestigious schools. And they've never talked together. And we had a group for three years, twice a month, where we shared cases, each of us coming from completely different horizons. And it was the richest experience any of us have ever had. And we saw couples together. Wow. In front of each other. So two people would work with a couple while the two or three others were watching. And the couples found it extraordinary. I mean, you could really see what it's like when you work with, you know, you, all, all of us would have done good therapy, but all of us focused on something completely different. So I've always sought, you know, to meet people on the, you know, that are doing something else than me. I don't need an extension of myself. <laughs> kind of a lifestyle. It's a, and so I do it in my work, in my work as well. Um, you know, Mating in Captivity was a book that challenged a lot of conceptions that had been presented to me as if they were fact, when in fact they're just theory or assumptions. And the state of affairs takes it even a step further. Um, it's a book that really challenges the deep thinking that underlines bias, prejudice, judgment, um, narrowness, um, that kind of thing. I mean, it also, of course, embraces the other views where they are compatible, but I think here is one subject that, you know, is mired in, in judgment and in simplistic thinking and black and white and shaming and secrecy. And, and I thought we can do better. Your capacity as a therapist to sit with people in this, in this space. I'm, I'm going to take us back a bit and then we'll come into the specificity of the, of the books and the work itself. But listening to these taboo topics and these incredibly painful conversations, these very real ones. You never judge and you never blame and you never take sides. You sit in there with them and you find the places of healing. I know that that's 34 years of training, but can you articulate how you do that, how you sit in complexity and nuance and 
you, your perspective, the the windows that you open to let the light shine in, are as your as you say, they're healing people in the public arena. Just listening to it, how do you do that? Hmm. I have opinions. You know, it's not like I'm neutral. I have opinions. The fact that I don't judge is different, but I do hold people accountable. I think that uh, I'm very clear that I work from a strong um, accountability foundation. Um, I believe in the fact that we are creatures of meaning, and so I look for what things mean, um, even if they have very dark meanings sometimes. And of course, often because I don't judge, I'm very, I'm quickly seen as somebody who condones or, or tolerates or encourages. Which, in fact, if you listen to my work, it's far from. Uh, everybody has to be accountable for what they bring, um, and because I actually think that we are that the, the beautiful definition of self-esteem is our ability to see ourselves as flawed individuals while still holding ourselves in high regard. Beautiful. And that's a definition that my colleague Terry Real has given me and that I think is a, an amazing line. So, um, so, we, so just, know. just to ask, do you think then that in a public forum or as, as in Western culture, we reduce things to, to the most narrow and the most simplistic when we know we're complex, we know we're nuanced and and to be a human being is to be flawed and to to grow over time or to shrink over time. Why do you think we simplify things? Is it to protect ourselves? I think in part we simplify things because we live in a secularised society. Um, religion used to help us with three very fundamental questions. One was the incomprehensible. How do we make sense of the incomprehensible, the incoherent, the incomprehensible, the creation, the this, the that, the mystery. One was about why, why do bad things happen to good people? So the question of suffering. And then the question of evil. And it helped us deal with the three most important questions. What I don't know, why I, how to suffer, not that I won't suffer, but how to suffer, and, and evil, and morality. And those three foundations in a secularized world are no longer held up by an institution, by a, by a you know, wisdom, they are now all in the hands of individuals. So we have to figure all of these things out ourselves. In fact, we try to figure them out alone and we try to figure them out in romantic love. We seek in romantic love what we usually used to look for in religion. Transcendence, meaning, belonging, ecstasy. You know, we talk about our partners like soulmates. That used to belong to God. So the, the, the burdens of the self have never been heavier and the self cannot always tolerate ambiguity and nuance and ambivalence. And we live in a very, and the more you go West and the more you go individualistic and the more we want to be perfect, well, perfection makes a lot of people miserable and it doesn't allow them to live with their, their flaws and their ambiguities. So 
Um, I think that's part of why we are simplifying. The digital flattens things as well. Everything is being flattened. From the moment Tom Friedman wrote, the world is flat and globalization began and the digital entered in, things have become more uh, flat or simple. That doesn't mean that life has become more simple and the questions haven't changed one iota. But the way we are trying to address it, we used to think that maturity, the definition of maturity was our ability to live with ambivalence. Hmm. That's how Freud used to define maturity. The fact that you could love and hate at the same time, the fact that you could be good and bad at the same time, strong and weak at the same time, you know, that the fact that you could hold ambivalences, two contradictory feelings, two contradictory states of being inside one person. That was the definition of maturity. And we thought, by the way, that what helped you experience maturity was the ability to tolerate frustration. <laughs> frustration was an essential building block to maturity. And today we are thinking very differently. We are hoping that we will have little kids who will never be too frustrated. God mm. forbid they will feel bad about themselves, about something, you know. Um, so I think that that's a part of why we simplify. We try to think that there's a one-size-fits-all. Um, whoever doesn't succeed failed. You know, you, there's only one model to be married, basically, and if you don't, you failed, or that you have a problem. You have a, you know, we pathologize you to, to why you can't con conform to the norm. Not that there were not norms before; there were plenty of norms before. I, I'm completely fascinated. I have a thousand questions here in a different direction, but what I'm actually most gripped by in talking to you that almost makes me want to cry <laughs> is how on earth are you able to sustain such a three-dimensional, compassionate, open and sort of robustly adventurous perspective on what it is to be human? You must be under all the same pressures that I am under, that we're all under from our inboxes to the phone calling all the time. You've got patients, you're still in clinical practice, you're doing podcasts, you're... How, how are you able to talk to me at five, now it's nearly six o'clock at night, your time, with such a whole and healthy and um, I'm actually in awe just having this conversation? You know, when I'm in this room or when you're asking me questions... There's nothing else I have to do. So part of why I can stay in that three-dimensional thing is the focus. This room is like Zen. When mm. I'm in this room, there's no phone. There's nothing interrupting me. I, I'm calm. It's the world outside that is more. Being in this room is like being plunged in a deep novel. Mm. You know, and novels are always three-dimensional when they're good. And, and they capture all kinds of flawed people. You know, so I think what really helps me is to have a literary perspective that comes kind of natural to me, um, in addition to a psychological perspective. Um, I think that I work much more like an artist than like a scientist, which means that I'm less focused on evidence-based practices, and I'm much more interested in the meeting with the unknown. You know, the couple I just said goodbye to, 
I've seen for a while, and it just came clear that the woman's been drinking herself into... Uh, she's been drinking massively, massively. And, um, you know, it would be great if she could talk to him, but she may not be able to say everything all at once. And, uh, and when people have held secrets for a long time and they finally vomit, they sometimes uh, vomit too fast and too much at once without thinking about what this is going to do to the other person. Or they rationalize that the other person deserves to know the truth. Really? Um, you know, re that's the kind of thing. Yes, it's a nice line. It's a nice line. But is it really for the other person? Hmm. Or maybe you should ask the other person how much they want to know. <laughs> and then if they tell you, I'm not sure I want to know everything, you answer to them, well, that's why we disconnected. Really? You know, a couple is the best theater in town. Hmm. So... You started this conversation talking about your parents and I, I'm also the grandchild of survivors and the way that you have framed their story and the impact on you is very poignant and powerful. I have two questions on that. So who was Esther Perel as a young woman and did you always have a healthy psychological relationship with sexuality and wholeness and relationship or was it something you cultivated over time and through your work and and the second part is about the modeling of your parents and and you wrote this incredible piece about hurt and betrayal versus growth and discovery and I feel like talking about the holocaust and coming out of that great betrayal your parents seemed to be able to uh, find healing, if only partial. Was Esther Perel? Esther Perel was a very feisty little girl. I was uh, athletic, physical, energetic, bold, um, and very extroverted, I think, from the start. Um, I looked and appeared the same as now, but I could often be a shaking leaf inside. Hmm. You know, I often say if I had the confidence of today with the looks of then. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I didn't, I, I looked like I had it till now. And I can see because I see it in my son. One of my sons, it's like he's a mirror. I mean, I'm like, oh, God, you know, you tell me how, how you feel inside. Nobody knows an iota. And I was like, you know, I felt like you and I looked like you. Huh. <laughs> you know, and, um, but certainly, um, I mean, my parents were talkers. So, you know, if you wanted to regale your, the, the house, you had to tell stories of how you were bold and you defeated the system. Hmm. You know, maverick stories, survival stories, basically. Which So I hitchhiked a lot as a young girl and all kinds of stories of adventures like that were always very praised in our house. Following rules was certainly not what uh, what people were interested in, hmm. which is a key part of the same thing of shaking orthodoxies or, you know, going against the grain or not as a provocateur, just simply as someone that challenges the status quo. Um, because it's the status quo that allowed the terrible proliferation of, of anti-Semitism. So status quo was not a good thing in our house. You know, it's what allowed evil to proliferate because people didn't speak against things. You know, so uh, breaking rules was highly praised. You know, um, 
if there was no space anymore at the theater, but you managed to find a way in, those stories were always very, you know. Um, sexually, I was brought up in a in a dual reality. The reality of home was complete ignorance, and the reality of the culture in which I lived, particularly the Francophone culture, even though I lived in the Flemish part of Belgium, was the whole kind of French education around relationship and and the relationship between men and women and all of that. Um, so it's cultivated. I cultivated it later on. I did not grow up with any of this. I grew up with sensuality. Mm. I grew up, you know, my, my mother taught me to dance. We had clothing stores, so I learned to dress. Um, looking good was very important in the family. Um, um, there was a lot of sensuality. There was a lot of touch. There was a lot of affection and warmth. Uh, we sang together, we danced together, but there wasn't sexuality. It's different. Sexuality was actually very scary, uh, especially for women. Sexuality, you know, the world was seen as a, as a predatory world. That was the, the, the dominant, uh, um, view. So I had to go outside to experience something that was not as, um, women are at risk. Men are, men, my mother had a line, you know, men marry who they want and women marry who they can. Who? The, 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 the gender structure was quite clear in her, uh, you know, those lines kind of, I heard them many times and I definitely cultivated a different uh, reality for myself. And then your second part was? How your parents experience of betrayal, the ultimate betrayal, which was the whole society, and their ability to heal even if only partially because, of course, in your work you're dealing with deep betrayal and grief and damage and brokenness as well as all the other things, but just to talk to that. Um, I, think, I think it gave me a more realistic or maybe not more realistic, but a different perspective on life. You know, in the world coexist different things all at the same time. Yeah. That you can be having an affair and at the same time you continue to be the person who is supporting your wife's alcoholic brother and still visiting her mother twice a week in the nursing home and still running a company where you are doing wonderful things and you can do all of this at the same time. And that ability, you know, my father described to me at one point, um, my father would describe that as he was walking to the factories in, in freezing weather with newspaper around his feet, there would sometimes be German people standing on the edge of the street throwing them pieces of bread. And I think he always just allowed me to see that, you know, you look for the humanity, and in the midst of this, you find little, little gems. Um, you know, he could distinguish between the younger SS and the older SS. He said the older SS sometimes had compassion because they were older. They remembered their, their, their older parents. And the younger SS were hoodlums from the jails that they just took out criminals, and they had zero. He had this no. My father was illiterate. My father had a third-grade third education. But he had an ability to, to size up people and he couldn't size them up by the traditional criteria. You know, he had a way of, uh, um, I mean, he always said, 
doesn't matter how rich they are, doesn't matter how educated they are, you look at their decency. And I understand that people can be loyal and unfaithful at the same time. Um, and some people are faithful and they are horrible creatures. And some people are unfaithful and they actually love their partner. You know, this notion that the one who is faithful is by definition more committed, kinder, or more so morally superior. No, not necessarily. I've seen, I've seen horrible people who were perfectly faithful, you know, but I've seen very kind people who were unfaithful. So it's this, it's the ability to understand the contradictions that are built in. Um, my father, after the war, you know, he tried to have all kinds of Jews help him. To, to establish businesses in Belgium and every single one of them robbed him. Wow. And it's one, it's one Gentile family that actually treated him the best, you know, and everybody could say the goy, the going, but it was the going who'd really, the goy that came through. And so what it looks is not necessarily what it is. And it's convenient to think certain ways, but that doesn't mean that's the case, that that's true. Convenience isn't truth. Bravo. I make you sad. Yeah, no, you're not making me sad. It's just it's beautifully expressed. It's so poignant and and to, you know, I think for me personally the the great revelation of my own therapeutic journey as an adult was what you said. Maturity is the ability to hold in yourself and in the world ambivalence, duality, ambiguity that, that, Nothing is black and white. And uh, my son said to me yesterday, oh, well, that would all, he's 10. Um, and he said to me, so, well, it doesn't matter anyway, mum, the whole world's going to shit because Trump's in power and um, it's, you know, the the environment is collapsing, so it, none of the good stuff matters. And I said to him, oh, my God, darling, at the same time in this world, all of these incredibly inspiring and good things are happening human beings are remarkable and he said tell me one good thing he really what did you say and straight away I, I said to him well I do that every day in Dumbo Feather I'm talking to people who are looking for the light and people are doing incredible things there's a woman in Melbourne called Ronnie Ka- uh, sorry in Sydney Ronnie Khan and she's rescuing millions of tons of fresh food that all of the supermarkets were throwing out and she's feeding families that can't feed themselves and she has a free supermarket in Sydney and people are going and shopping for fresh fruit and vegetables and we're not throwing it away that's a good thing what well, he said he wanted more. He said, tell me more stories. <laughs> I suggest that every night when you tuck him away, you say, you know, every night before we go to sleep, we're going to put some beautiful stories and we're going to put the title of these stories on little pieces of paper and we're going to create the box of goodness. Mm. I love that. And when you feel scared in the world, you'll hold that box in your hands. And it'll become like a talisman for him. Um, I actually wanted to ask you that question because I was asking you about you as a young woman and the influence of your parents' story of um, betrayal and healing, but you're always referring back to the patient's upbringing 
their family dynamics that shape their adult sexual selves. So what advice would you be giving parents raising young children to become sexually healthy and confident adults? You create a conversation, like even with your 10-year-old. You know, one of the beautiful things that also is going on in the world is the love between us and the love that you have for some of your friends and the way that you show up for them and they have shown up for you. And uh, it's an extraordinary thing how in the midst of everything, nobody has ever been able to make people stop loving. People have had love stories in the camps, people made babies in the camps, people made love in the camps, I mean, in every camps. Um, and, you know, that's, and it, and it begins a story of, of resilience, of, of the power of the heart, of, um, and, and how, you know, and, and look how we are holding each other right now as you're talking. And, um, and that way of, of that we hold each other is, is such a, a, one of the most wonderful things we get to experience. And then one day it won't be me holding you, but it will be the, the person you will fall in love with and your girlfriends or your boyfriends. And, uh, and, and it becomes an integrated conversation. You're not talking about the birds and the bees and you're not talking about anatomy and danger and dysfunction. And you're talking about, you know, how sexuality is a part of how we discover our bodies and how it becomes a part of how we discover a, a, a unique kind of connection with others. And, um, and if it was naturally put like that without much fanfare, um, uh, without, you know, much, shroudedness on to, uh, all around it, we would be doing really well. And I would start it at age four because age four is when kids are theologians, natural theologians, <laughs> they, to know where, where do we come from and where do we go? So that's the natural moment to start to talk about, you know, birth and death and therefore creation, etc., etc., or conception more correctly. Um, it's a real, it's a, I mean, I have two sons. I've spent, are my entire years with them um, being in a dialogue over all kinds of things that have to do with their with their relationships, various aspects of it, and uh, and I know that they've always said nobody else talks like this, and I just think okay, the next I don't want to do another book, but I know that everybody's asking me how do you talk to your kids and to your older kids, and what kind of conversations do you have, and and I I could. When I tell my friends the conversations I have with my sons, people are like, but, but that's because I said, no, no, it's not because it's because I worked on this. I cultivated this over years, you know, um, and they don't, talk, you know, they don't talk about their sex life, but they will ask me certain questions about their girlfriends and, you know, their, their sex life and their mother, and they don't need to talk to me about that. But, you know, the first time my youngest son brought a girl home, I told him I want to know her name and I want her here for breakfast tomorrow morning because her parents probably don't know where she is. She probably lied to them and said, I'm going to a girlfriend. So we're not going to make her come in here surreptitiously in and out. You know, um, she will be at the table with us and, and, and we will dignify this experience. Um, and he looked at me and, and now he thanks me. I mean, it was, it was exactly what the girl needed. I don't know that it's that complicated, but it's uh, there is something in the Anglo culture in particular that really struggles with this. 
And I did a huge session this weekend in LA with a thousand people on harassment and assault with a, with a fishbowl of a hundred people in the center. It was unique. I've never done anything like it. It was one of a kind. But you could see this, the, the, the people had never had these conversations with each other. None. The men, what the men were talking about, the women had never heard. And what the women were talking about, the men didn't know what to do with. You know, it's basically how do you create a session for men to be vulnerable and women to be safely angry? Wow. How? But, how do you do that? Esther, that is a I, big thing to hold. It, it, it was amazing. I mean, I, in one hour, in one hour, I needed an hour and a half, but in one hour, everybody that was there knew that they were experiencing something. Um, we all, we all knew it. You know, when you're like in, in that thing and you say, Oh my God, what is happening here? <laughs> it's, uh, it was one of those. Um, uh, but you know, this culture is very much blue and pink. Yeah. But they want it blue and pink. And so, you know, Actually, that's one of the questions I really was fascinated because you, you speak nine languages and you you travel everywhere and you speak to so many different people. Different cultures have different mores about sexuality and sexual health or, or intimacy, eroticism. What is, what is the same the world, uh, the world over? And are there cultures you've come across that have healthier, more whole attitudes to sex and intimacy? Um. I think the Scandinavians are definitely doing something right. You know, it, there's a difference when on the board you have 50% of women, period. That changes things. There's a difference when you make mandatory paternity leave and you put the little baby on the father's chest for three months. You know, there's a difference when the Dutch create one, every year from age four on one week of love at school. For, the, for a week we teach about relationships, sexuality and everything like that. You know, a week, not an hour. Uh, the Belgians have just, the Brussels actually, have just outlawed catcalling and street harassment. But in the meantime, they're, they're organizing workshops in all the Planned Parenthood about flirting and seduction. What's the difference between a compliment and a degradation? You know, um, that's part of what we discussed in that session too. Um, so what is similar what is similar is that people want to connect people want to experience respect people want to feel that they can trust people want um to be touched with care uh i mean all of those fundamentals are all over the world um you know women want to feel safe men would like not to be amputated of their emotions and their vulnerability you know from the start um so all of these things, you know, safety in a family, you know, the trespassing that takes place, the amount of abuse, um, all of that is, I think, rather universal. Um, the French do certain things very well. I think they do, um, they do have a certain culture of, um, of seduction and appreciation between men and women that is often not available in the U.S. The U.S., it's too pragmatic a society to understand flirtation. They like to close the deal and score. <laughs> um, um, I have. I think the millennials do better than the boomers on certain things, and mm. they do less well. Than, and you know, I'm this unique generation. 
that window of 15 years where we had the pill before AIDS. So what I experienced, nobody else, what I and my generation experienced, nobody else has known it except the generation of the 70s with the pill and before AIDS. Freedom. And, uh, and we, we knew sort of freedom and safety combined that nobody else has experienced, not before and not after. You know, um, so so let me ask you. Yeah, and I gave a talk straddling Tinder and arranged marriages. Huh. Right? Because the same person in India that's studying in Delhi is doing Tinder, and then they go home to their village and they have to deal with arranged marriages. You know, how do you integrate those two things? So. Um, I'm very interested in these big cultural clashes. You know, my, my work, I have, before I ever touched sexuality, I was for 20 years primarily focused on cross-cultural psychology. And I looked at how relationships change with large cultural shifts, mm -hmm. such as migration, voluntary or forced migration, and intermarriage, which was the main stuff I wrote about for 20 years interracial, intercultural, interreligious families, but also relationships when the regime changes, the fall of communism, the shift from socialism to, to capitalism, basically, to individualistic-oriented societies, and then later the digital revolution. So, And I looked specifically how these huge cultural shifts affect gender roles and child-rearing practices. That was my work for 20 years before I ever touched sexuality. Hmm. And the reason I looked at sexuality is because I think it's a fantastic lens into a society. The most radical, progressive changes in a society occur around sex and sexuality and the attitudes and the behaviors thereof, and the most rooted, archaic, traditional, immutable things of a society also are lodged around its attitudes and beliefs around sex. And so sexuality is a powerful lens into a society, into abstinence and into prohibition. Mm. That's kind of why I became interested in, in, in sexuality. It's a, it, and, and I, you know, so I see things that I like in Cuba, but then I see other things that I think are just I don't have a single idealist, ideal society on this stuff. I don't think we've come up with one yet. You can learn more about Esther and access her resources and programs over at estherperel.com. Thanks to Series Organics for partnering with us on this episode. They're a fantastic New Zealand company who have been at the forefront of the organic movement for nearly 40 years. I'll leave you with one of my favourite quotes of Esther's. The quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives. Take care and see you again soon on the podcast.